Welcome to Movule Podcast. My name is Esther Mbabazi, and I'm the host. Movule Podcast is a show where we talk about nature, the environment, and climate change. I am a photographer and nature lover from Uganda. This show started through the Apollo Forests, a tree planting project that got me asking questions about nature and our role in the environment. The podcast is named Movule after a beautiful and majestic indigenous tree species of hardwood, which is sadly being overexploited to rarity. On the show, I'll be chatting with people in the environmental spaces, from activists to storytellers, scientists, farmers, policymakers, among others. Today we're talking about journalism with Frederick Mujira, a journalist from Uganda, who will tell us about his work. Thank you for joining us, Frederick. Thank you, Esther. Yeah, my name is Frederick Mujira. I'm a journalist and I've done this for over 18 years in Uganda, in Africa, in Europe, in America, and also I've done this in Asia. So I founded a network of journalists in Africa who report about water. It is called Water Journalists Africa. So under Water Journalists Africa, about 1,000 journalists spread across Africa in 50 countries, and we report about water. So under Water Journalists Africa, we have different projects. We have InfoNile. So InfoNile is a geojournalism platform that targets journalists in the Nile Basin. There are 11 countries in the Nile Basin. So then we report stories about the Nile Basin. And these are different stories. Eh? Under InfoNile, we do report about stories like climate change in the Nile Basin, water scarcity, uh, loss of biodiversity, and several other stuff. We do bring journalists and scientists together. When we were starting InfoNile, which I started with an American journalist, we realized that there were so many challenges for the journalists in the Nile Basin. One of them was lack of skills to report the story. And then we are giving them skills now, training them about geojournalism, data journalism, so then they can report factual stuff. But we also aim at making sure that we link them to scientists and researchers so that when they report their stories, they enable their communities to take scientific decisions eh, to develop their communities. Because you see, when you, you read through some of these stories, you don't find scientific facts in the stories. Eh? And we want people to take scientific decisions to make sure they help their communities develop, but they rely on politicians who may not help them much. But also under Water Journalists Africa, we have a project called The Big Gorilla Story. Uh, this is a project I started three years ago that looks at conservation of gorilla in Uganda, Rwanda, and DR Congo. And we are training young journalists that live close to the parks in telling news video stories that can capture how communities are conserving gorillas in their habitat. Thank you very much. So over yeah. the 15 years of your experience yeah. working as a journalist, mm. what led you to conservation? Why, why conservation and the environment? My journalism started during the times when climate change was a big story. Now, the story of climate change, of course, has grown. It's old. Grandmothers will tell you, I'm not able to plant now because the sun is hot. But when I was starting journalism, that, those are the years when it was a big story. So then I realized that I needed to give service through journalism to my community. So that's why I took on environmental journalism. Eh? 
And through your experience working as an environmental journalist, what are some of the most pressing issues that you've come across? Well, there are so many. One of them is the challenge of lack of credible sources because scientists and researchers do not trust journalists because journalists regularly misrepresent their facts. So you go to a researcher and do an interview with him. If you want to, you call him, says, I'm not around, come tomorrow, come the other day. Because he fears that you're going to misrepresent his facts. So he doesn't want to give you information. So what happened? You go run almost like a half-baked story that will not help communities take scientific decisions because it lacks the component of science. Yeah. So almost all these environmental stories you see must be based on scientific facts. Because scientists do research around these issues by diversity loss and deforestation, the loss of habitats for wild animals. You find so many scientists working on this. But if you bump into these stories and you write without facts from scientists, I mean, you're bound to make your readers take wrong decisions eh, based on those stories. The fact that some scientists do not know how to make their reports as simple as possible for the local communities to understand. Why? Because they don't work with journalists, so they remain in their groups eh, as scientists. Eh? So then they publish and keep in their bookshelves instead of working with journalists who can help them simplify their info. I've realized that it is very important to co-produce knowledge with a researcher. From your experience working mm. in the communities and telling these stories, mm. what, um, what are the most pressing environmental challenges that you've come across? There are different environmental challenges depending on the community you are working on. But what I have found out as big challenges now, eh, and everywhere, especially different continents, one, climate change. You see a lot of floods. Communities are not able to plant during the planting season. They wait for rains, rains don't come. So climate change is something to underline. And also issues of deforestation, where people go into forests, cut them because they want to, to plant, because they want charcoal, because they want timber, on small scale or large scale destruction of uh, forests. Um, I want to underline several other issues, including flooding, which we usually see affecting so many communities in Uganda. Yeah, but also what we may need to underline is the destruction of the wildlife by diversity, especially when communities cross and go into protected areas like national parks, wildlife areas, and then they destroy the biodiversity within these areas. It can be the wild animals, it can be the plants that they feed on, and then uh, which denies them food, yeah. Yeah, and when you tell stories about these very important and pressing issues about the environment, what do you hope or want your readers to do after reading these stories and seeing the videos and seeing the data? What do you want me as a layperson to get out of it? Well, I think that is uh, what all journalists do. Before you, for example, you go to the field to write a story, you must know the significance of the story you're going to write. One of the significances is to inform the reader, take inform the decision because you will go research talk to so many people including those in authority 
including researchers. So then the reader, you want him to read what you have given him to take a decision based on what you have in the story. So that's the thing. If, for example, I write a story about climate change, I want the reader to know that it is a fact there is climate change and is partly to blame when he cuts down trees. So I want him to learn so then he does not cut the trees. Yes, that's yeah. very important work because yeah. I feel like most of the times on an individual level, we're not rich. This is where you journalists come in. Um, and uh, going back to the story, we were mm. chatting before we started recording about plastic pollution. Yeah. Mm. And earlier you mentioned something about how you tested the water mm. and what you found out. Can you please yeah. share with us a bit about that? Because I was really intrigued by okay. that fact. Uh, so the fellowship is called Bartha Challenge Fellowship, which I took on for one year. And I uh, went to the lakes. I went to Lake George. I went to Lake Edward, Albert and yoga and tracked plastic pollution. The relationship between plastics and the people who live up around these lakes. I went to several learning sites. I talked to fishermen, especially fishermen, you know, that the ones who take plastics into these lakes because they use them as floaters, floaters for their fishing nets. Yeah, so I went to most of these lakes. I would go interview fishermen and they, they can tell you we go with uh, 100 empty plastic bottles, but we come back with 25. So 75 drop into the lake and never come to the landing site. And also, you see, there are so many uh, you know, across the landing sites. So I, I, uh, I picked water. I worked with a researcher at McKellar University. He's a PhD researcher. Picked samples from two lakes and we took them to a government lab and we tested for plastic residues in this water. And you know what? We didn't find plastic. We never found microplastics in water. It's a very big challenge. For me, as a journalist, I learned that even science can at one time fail to prove a story. For me, I was seeing a story. Even if you go there now, you see plastics everywhere. I know, I've seen. Yeah, but you take that water to a government lab, and test for plastic residues using the modern methods of, of the, uh, detecting plastic. You don't find it there. And what does that mean, really? What does that mean? That yeah. the plastic isn't there, but we saw it there. So what yes. does that really mean? Yeah, so I talked to several uh, researchers who have years of research about plastics in water, some in Uganda, some in Belgium, and almost all of them concluded that it is okay you can see plastics in water but they need more than 10 years to break down into microplastics. So most of them told me that you see those plastics, they will, the effect will be for the next generation. Yeah, I remember I talked to some officials also who said that the rate at which microplastics get from plastics and drop into water is extremely low in these lakes eh? because these lakes have their water is massive. Eh? Mm. So they keep dropping in slowly. Yeah, but now that means that microplastics are there. They are in the fish that we eat and they travel from these lakes and go to River Nile and end up into Mediterranean Sea and go to Egypt because all these lakes drain into the Nile. 
why I wanted to ask you um, about this again on record is because yeah. most of the dangers that we're doing now to the environment will leave the environment for the, our children and their children mm. and they won't have something solid to inherit. And I feel like That's this is thing. why these conversations are very important. Mm. And I'm so glad that you shared about that project. Mm. Um, back to your work. Why did you find the need? to inspire younger journalists and the younger generation to take up environmental journalism? For me, I strongly believe that it's very important to groom people who can take over and do exactly what we are doing. Because if we die with these skills, it means nothing. But also, you, you have said it, most of these environmental challenges we see will affect the next generation. So it is very important to train even the generation that we think would be there by the time these effects start. So then they can communicate and inform people. If, for example, it's about plastics in water, they can tell them what to do. Yeah. You're building legacy. That's really good. That's right. And you know, climate change and environmental degradation stories can be depressing. Mm. Are you hopeful for the future, personally? Yeah. Yeah. I mean... Because uh, I strongly believe that uh, Earth will still be there. It's not that because of climate change, after a few years, the Earth will disappear or something happens. Um, we have seen most of these effects as a result of climate change, but we have also seen communities adapt. For me, I think that's how God created us. When things, when you find a challenge, a problem, he also gives you skills to adapt. You have seen how communities now adapt because of climate change. They are not able to plant, for example, plant millet in August. So then they are planting crops that are able to grow during the dry season when there are no rains. For me, I, I strongly believe that we will adapt and we will stay here. So you're hopeful because yeah, of right. adaptation. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And the communities having the information so they can make informed decisions that's to right. preserve the environment, which I think for me was a very big takeaway from this conversation mm. because sometimes we overlook the power of information mm. and we're making it accessible. Yeah. Okay. So my last question is, um, yes, you've mentioned about adaptation, right? Mm. You're a family person, right? Mm. You have children. Yeah. What are your hopes for them? Yeah, of course, I want them to live in a better environment. But for me, I believe that they have planned for me. Right now, I'm giving them skills. I take them to national parks. I take them to areas where there are challenges. For me, to show them that there are different issues in the world. So you should be part of the solution. I mean, they have to fight for the environment they want to live in they have to be part of the solution yeah wow that's the best way to end this podcast yes. because i feel like you've just summed it up really we can only do our part to make mm. you know the information available and to give hope to the future generation that mm. the environment is really under threat but we are here we can still be part of the mm. solution and with that, I would really like to thank you for taking the time to come and chat with us. Yeah. And, uh, I will put links to your website and information yeah. and people can check you out and learn thank about you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey of the Muvle podcast. 
please rate, review, subscribe, and share this show. Also, please follow us at Movele Podcast on social media. Thank you.